welcome to a special edition of our show, Herstory on the Rocks with Katie and Allie. Normally, just be Allie and I hanging out with a couple of cocktails, talking about famous women in history. But sometimes we like to talk to people who are writing about famous women in history. <laughs> we have a very special guest here with us today, Gemma Holman. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited. Gemma has a master's degree in medieval history from the University of York. She runs the blog and Twitter account, Just History Posts, and she's here with us today to talk about her latest book, The Queen and the Mistress, The Women of Edward III. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so uh, already a good summary. Um, Yeah, I'm a historian and author, um, very much into my history. Even in my spare time, I go to historic houses and for my boyfriend and my parents with every little fact and things. Um, But uh, yeah, I I work in the heritage industry uh, sort of as my day job. Um, And then, yeah, as I said, in my quote unquote spare time, uh, I write history books and I run my history blog, Just History Posts, uh, which I really quite enjoy because medieval history is sort of my specialism and it's what I enjoy writing Um, but I really do just like any history Um, so my blog's kind of a really good way for me to write about like completely random things in history that happened as well Um, like I mean one of my blog posts is about how uh, the Australian army in the 20th century fought a war against emus and lost and so it's just like you know that's not something I get to do you know in any any other part of life so uh, yeah it's it's really fun Um, but yeah as I said I'm just a sucker for history, really. <laughs> I love that. Perfect. Well, we are too. <laughs> so, as usual, we have made a cocktail in honor of your book. Um, so, this is called The Queen and the Mistress. So, it's based off of a cocktail called The Fool Windsor. Um, because even though I believe Edward III is not a Windsor of the mm-hmm. Windsor family, but he was called Edward of Windsor or something like that. So... <laughs> He, he's, he's the one who bigged up Windsor Castle and made it all grand. So, yeah, definitely Windsor connection there. <laughs> so it's based off of that. Um, so it has scotch, sweet vermouth, uh, Calvados, which is like an apple brandy, orange bitters, maraschino cherry, just like a little bit of the juice and a cherry itself. And then in order to honor uh, the mistress herself, I was like, I feel like I have to add something like a little bit scandalous on top of this very fancy drink. Um, so it's topped with Sprite. <laughs> oh, fantastic. <laughs> well, it looks very tasty. <laughs> mm, delicious. <laughs> so before we dive into your book, can we set the scene a little bit? Your book and writing focuses on two women connected to Edward III of England, Philippa, his queen, and Alice, his mistress. What was life like for women at this time, especially ones of different social classes and women who are connected to really famous high-ranking men? Yeah, so um, this century is a really interesting period in English history um, because quite a lot happens socially and economically. Um, So Edward has a really long reign, which is always really helpful. It stabilizes the country. He had lots of successful wars, which brought in money to the country and treasures looted from abroad. Um, But the Black Death also hit um, and obviously decimated up to half of Europe. Um, And that also led to a whole load of economic changes. Um, And so as the century kind of progresses, you kind of end up with people a lot wealthier than they were before. And it's when you sort of get the start of the real development of what we'd kind of call the middle classes, so specifically the mercantile classes. So, you know, before it was very much that kind of classic idea of 
you have the church, you have the knights and the monarchy, and then you have the peasants. And now you're kind of getting these new people coming in who are the traders and the merchants and they're providing goods and things. Um, and all of this wealth means that people are living a bit better. Um, education is a bit better. So again, you know, we kind of have this idea of people not being educated in the medieval period, particularly women. Um, but at the time that I'm sort of writing, there were some schools in London that taught girls. Um, so, you know, I sort of talk about this a bit with, with the mistress, Alice, in that she comes from one of these mercantile classes. And so her upbringing really would have been quite different to if she had been born 50 years earlier. Um, um, you know, we do have evidence that she was educated to an extent that she could read and possibly write. Um, she was obviously very uh, intelligent in sort of business dealings and so had obviously had a lot of experience in that side and education on that side. Um, but it was still quite a restrictive time, um, you know, although people were starting to merge between strands of society and people could rise up. It was still very much, you know, your life tended to be whatever station that you had been born into. And if you were a woman, the majority of the time, it meant that you were going to marry someone and you're going to have children. Uh, or if you were sort of of the higher classes, it might mean that you could escape that and go to a nunnery instead and become a religious woman. Um, but in general, those are kind of your two options. If you're a woman born at this time, you know, you're either a wife or a nun. And that's it. Um, you know, you can't kind of strike out on your own and uh, <laughs> and everything. And uh, yeah, your your life is prescribed by men around you. Um, and that's not to say, you know, it was um, obviously it was a patriarchal society, but that's not to say women didn't have any rights and they couldn't do anything and they were just stuck at home making babies. They did do a lot, uh, but their lives were still dictated by by the men around them and, and what their husbands were doing and what their fathers were doing um, and what their brothers were doing. So, uh, yeah, very interesting time. Lots of change, but lots of tradition still in place. Mm -hmm. And I would love to start with um, talking about his wife, Philippa of Hainault. So they were married for 41 years, which is, I feel like, longer than most people even lived back then. <laughs> and she birthed 12 children, even more crazy that she survived. <laughs> it's known as one of the most successful royal marriages in English history. So can you tell us a little bit about more, like more about their relationship and Philippa's relationship to the people of England and the kind of power she had as the queen? Yeah, so um, Philippa and Edward's relationship started sort of very traditionally for people who were in the upper nobility in the royal family in that it was a political marriage, uh, which was arranged between their parents. Um, it wasn't the most romantic of circumstances. Um, Edward's mother uh, was currently in the middle of a fight with his father, who was Edward II of England, um, and was basically planning an invasion force um, because... There were lots of problems in England um, and Edward was known for having lots of male favourites and there were these two favourites, the Dispensers, um, who were really hated in England and had sort of caused Isabella, Edward's mother, to lose all of her lands and power and status. Um, so she had gathered with a whole load of exiled English nobles in France and they decided they wanted to get rid of these favourites. Um, but again, Isabella, although she's a queen, she's a woman, she's got some resources, but they're limited. And so she needed support. And one of her cousins, uh, family ties, very important if you're a royal at this time, one of her cousins is uh, married to the Count of Hainault. Um, and so they sort of go, right, OK, how can we make a mutually beneficial deal here? 
And the idea comes between these two women that they'll marry their children. So Edward III, who at the time was just Prince Edward, will marry the Count of Hainault's daughter, Philippa. Um, and in return, uh, Philippa's father will provide an invasion fleet for Isabella as the dowry. So Isabella gets her invasion force. And the benefit for William, uh, the Count, is A, his daughter is going to become Queen of England at some point, which is obviously really great for the family status. Um, it will also help with trade. Um, you know, his territories were very much trade based and very wealthy, and it opens up new potential markets for his people. Uh, so lots of benefits on both sides. But obviously, you've got these two teenagers in the middle. Uh, Philippa is only about 12, 13 years old, um, and Edward's only about two years older than them. Um, and although it's a very political marriage and people have kind of focused on this of, you know, oh, it's not very romantic and it was just a kind of political transaction. Um, there's some chronicler accounts um, from a man called Foissart. Um, who in his uh, during his political career, he actually worked for Philippa at her court and he was a court writer for her. And he wrote a chronicle that's really important for the record of Edward's reign. And he obviously got a lot of his information firsthand because he was literally working for Philippa. Um, and he sort of says this very romantic version that Edward had gone to visit the court and out of all of the daughters of the Count of Hainault, he liked Philippa the best kind of thing and sort of bigging it up that like, no, 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 it wasn't political. They were really romantic. Um, and lots of historians have kind of picked up on this and gone, oh, you know, it's just them romanticising it in their old age and being all wistful. Um, but I do think that there is evidence that the couple would have been attracted to each other early on, um, because the whole point of the marriage is that Isabella was doing this to overthrow or to deal with her husband. Um, and she actually had no technical authority over her son. Um, so she couldn't make Edward marry anybody because he needed his father's permission. So actually the marriage was illegal in the first place. But that's a whole other story. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Isabella couldn't force Edward to do anything. So although it is a political marriage, it's not a you have to marry this person and that's it. He could have said no and it wouldn't have happened. Mm. Um, so she very much needed to get him on side and make him sort of see this is a good marriage um and sort of our hints from from later on is that you know Philippa was a perfect queen she knew exactly how to act she knew how to talk to everybody she knew how to manage people she was very cultured her parents court was a particularly cultured court so there was lots of books and music um and all other bits of art and everything so you know there's no reason why he wouldn't like her um so yeah I think you can definitely sort of find some romance even amongst the politics um but yeah as you say you know from very early on it was very successful um I think particularly sort of Edward's troubled home life with you know his parents warring his father possibly gets murdered later on his mother takes a lover there's a whole load of drama going on and I think for him Philippa was a really stable entity because She's come over to this country that she's never been to before. She doesn't speak the language. She doesn't know anybody. And she's married off to this stranger. And so Edward's kind of all she's got. So she probably was relying on him quite a lot. And she didn't have other ties to other people in the kingdom. So he knew that she was only loyal to him. And I think that probably was what he needed at that time to sort of deal with everything else going on in his horrible family to go, OK, at least I've got my lovely wife. Um, and yeah, I think that probably helped 
bring them close together early on. Um, and, and yeah, they obviously got on like a house on fire because they were barely apart their entire marriage, really. Um, anywhere that Edward went, Philippa normally followed. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of evidence that it was a proper, you know, close, loving marriage and not just a political marriage. Hmm. So let's talk a little bit about our other main character, obviously, uh, Edward's mistress, Alice Perrers. How did she come into his life? And what did people think of her? What did Philippa think of her? Like, or was this just like, it's old hat, the king has a mistress. That's the way it is. Yeah, well, Alice is such an interesting sort of development, really, to, to Edward's life. Um, you know, having just banged on about how much he loved his wife and how happy he was. And, you know, they were just perfect for each other. It's like, oh, yeah, but also. Um, but no, it, it is very interesting because I could not find any other evidence that Edward had at any other point in his life and marriage to Philippa being unfaithful um obviously you know not every record survives and if he had a one-night stand with a woman in a random village okay we wouldn't know that but but no one ever accuses him of being unfaithful there's no records of illegitimate children apart from those with Alice um no one ever says anything at any point that is very gossipy um and it's it's a bit of a mixed bag really because as you say lots of kings had mistresses um lots of previous English kings had had mistresses um and so it wasn't that uncommon um but certainly for the last sort of 100 150 years or so there hadn't really been any mistresses so Edward's father and grandfather had both kind of been faithful to their wives um, and they didn't have a sort of any illegitimate children once they were married and things like that. So it was kind of becoming less of a thing in England, at least. Um, but again, still lots of members of the nobility would have had it. So it wouldn't have necessarily been too underhand. Um, the problem with Edward is he's had this 40 year marriage with Philippa and his big sort of thing is that he is the family man and he's got this big, strong, loving family and they're really close knit. And that's part of the reason why his relationship with Alice is kind of held so under wraps. Um, and it sort of comes along in the last decade or so of Philippa's life. Um, so Alice is a lot younger. She's about half the age of the king, about 30 years, possibly younger than him. Um, so she wasn't even alive for most of their marriage. Um, and, you know, that's a tale as old as time, really, an, an old man finding a, a young, pretty thing. Um, but but yeah, I think. I think that makes their relationship so interesting because so many people have kind of twisted it as, you know, exactly that. You know, she's a young woman. She's just trying to get stuff off the king. He's getting a bit old and senile and thinks, oh, I'll have one last hurrah kind of thing. But when you look at their relationship, we know that their relationship went on for at least 10 years, um, I think possibly closer to 15 years. They had three children together um, and that seems to have been the only relationship. So it's not like, oh, I've now taken a mistress, so I'll now take a dozen mistresses. It's like it was just Philippa and Alice. Um, and I think there's lots of evidence that theirs was also quite a tender relationship. Um, there's a lovely gift that Edward gets for Alice in the 1370s, um, which is a little brooch. And he has it inscribed with some words. And it says, think of me and never apart. So it's this really sweet sort of personal romantic 
present. Um, and, you know, although obviously Alice did get a lot of benefits being in a relationship with the king, Edward personally, certainly for the first decade or so of their relationship whilst Philippa is alive, is really restrained. You know, he's not showering her with gifts. He's not parading her in public and giving her land and gowns and jewels. He gives her a couple of small pieces of land here or there, no more than he gave to anybody else at court, um, not even some of his biggest grants that he gave to people. Um, so he's clearly very measured and, and thoughtful in this relationship as well. Um, but the kind of big mystery of Alice for so many centuries has been where she came from, because she just appears at court in the 1360s. And nobody knew who she was, where she came from, how she suddenly managed to find her way in a relationship with the king. Um, and so it's been really fun trying to piece together who exactly she was, where she came from, and how she managed to catch the eye of the king, who up to this point for the past 30 years has only had eyes for one woman. Um, and I think there's a lot of interesting parallels to be brought out between Alice and Philippa of what was it about these two people that out of everybody else that Edward had encountered, why was it those two that he decided he loved? Mm-hmm. Well, and I love that a big part of the book is talking about how history has remembered these two women and they've kind of made caricatures of them. Like you say that they're like the angel and the devil on Edward's shoulders, but there are deeper aspects to both of their characters that challenge that narrative. And I feel like you're trying to bring that out like in this book and kind of maybe set some of the story straight. So <laughs> what made Philippa not as perfect as people might think? And what made Alice not as evil as people may have thought at the time? <laughs> yeah, well, as, as you say, they, they both have kind of been, been victims of centuries of propaganda. Um, and because women's history, you know, has only really been sort of properly interrogated for the past few decades, that's meant that there's been 600 years in between this where everyone's just read the chronicles that said how perfect Philippa was and how horrible Alice was and just went, OK, yeah, that that must have been what happened then. Um, and so, yeah, it's been quite interesting trying to unpick well, which bits were true, which bits weren't, what gets left out and things like that. Um, and I mean, one of the things that has been a big focus for Philippa in recent years is um, her spending. Uh, she was in debt for pretty much all of her life, uh, the whole time she was in Queen. Uh, a Queen, Edward was constantly having to bail her out, pay off her debts um, and, and all of these things. And, you know, obviously a lot of these debts are her buying nice pretty gowns, nice jewels, a nice crown and things like that. Um, and so that's definitely sort of put a bit of a bit of a question mark on her relationship of, oh, well, you know, was she just a bit superficial and she just enjoyed all of these fine things and loved being queen? Um, but even that, I've sort of put a little bit of a spin on um, in the book and sort of pointed out, actually, a lot of that spending is what was expected of her as queen. Um, and a lot of it was actually part of Edward's own plans. Um, you know, he's he's at war with Scotland. He's at war with France. He's trying to claim kingship of two different countries. He's saying he's king of England and France. And so he needs to show how powerful he is. 
And the way you show that you're really powerful is to show that you're really rich. And the way to show you're really rich is if you can afford to deck your wife out in the most top of the, you know, height of fashion clothes, the most expensive materials dripping with jewels. If you can afford to dress your wife like that, then you can afford an army. And that means you're strong. Um, and so there are quite a few times across the, the reign where, you know, the most expensive outfits that Philippa get aren't just for something she's wearing on a Tuesday afternoon in her palace. It's for the big events that everybody in sort of Western Europe is going to see. Um, and so, you know, I'm not saying she didn't like <laughs> like all of the luxury. I'm sure she did. Um, but yeah, I don't think it's necessarily fair to say that she was this really vain, greedy woman, which which sort of some people have put across. Um, but, you know, there's there's always little things that 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 you'll be able to pick up on on uh in a person you know there's going to be people who get the raw end of a deal um or who's you know the words that were promised might not quite come out um so yeah there's there's definitely you know she it's not that she never put a foot wrong in sort of 50 years of being alive um but but it is really interesting to see how that portrayal has come across both at the time and since of actually how well she did perform the role that was expected of her um which I think is a really important part of the book um because as, as interesting it is to then look at Alice and see how she broke all the molds of femininity at the time actually it's really important to like sort of re- not not reward but like kind of really acknowledge like how well Philippa did play that role um because you know it's it's really easy for us today to look for feminist icons and you know look at the women who like struck out on their own and fought against everything but like it's also really amazing to in the 40 years of being a queen nobody said anything bad about you ever (laughs) you know like that in itself is really amazing that like she knew what was expected of her and she did it for 40 years every single day um and so I think that was really important for me to sort of highlight in the book um but yeah Alice was definitely the really interesting character to tackle in trying to dig away at all of that bad reputation that she's had you know so few people had a good word to say about her um but part of that is because of the power she held and the position she held that lots of people were kind of scared to write about her at all um so actually there's surprisingly little about her um there's one main chronicler um Thomas of Walsingham who absolutely hated Alice um but he loved to hate her he can't stop writing about her she turns up all the time and he just can't stop writing about how awful she is and she's really ugly and awful and you know she's just really lucky that she happened to find her way to court um but so many other writers just don't mention her at all um it's it's almost as if you wouldn't know she existed um and it's kind of because they're kind of a bit worried about putting a foot wrong um but i definitely think that there's evidence for a more nuanced portrayal of her um i wanted to be really careful in not saying oh everything that's been said about her is wrong and she was like a perfect wonderful woman and it's just sexism you know she definitely did do some not great things uh you know she definitely made promises to people that she turned her back on um and didn't follow through um she could be quite cutthroat in her businesses and she was very much out for her and her children and she didn't you know, care for the interests of others. You know, it's not like she was a big charitable woman who gave lots of money and built churches and did all of this. But I think that she certainly wasn't as abrasive as she's been portrayed. You know, she's been portrayed as this really greedy social climber who alienated everybody that she came across and everybody at court hated her. 
And I just think that's not realistic for numerous reasons. Um, firstly, just, I mean, you know, it might not be a factual argument, but as I said, Edward had only ever been with Philippa. So why would he spend 15 years with a horrible woman <laughs> when he could have had any woman in the country? Um, and so why would he pick like one of the most awful people that could be there? She must have had some redeeming qualities that he liked. Um, and we've also got lots of evidence of her having allies at court. Um, and and this is really evident in the fact that even after she has her big downfall and she's kicked out of court and Edward dies and she has no power anymore, she's still to her death keeps some of those friends at court, uh, one of them being a really, uh, really, really powerful bishop who is in government all the time and has lots of wealth and land and influence. And he still, to her death, is friends with her and allies with her. And you sort of think he has no benefit for that at that point. You know, she's not politically useful to him. Um, and so, again, that kind of hints, well, like, he obviously liked her um, and sort of had some kind of relationship with her in that. Um, so, yeah, I think there's definitely lots of hints that she wasn't as alienating as people thought. And it's more the circumstances she found herself in that people were like, well, it's a sink or swim situation. I'm going to turn on Alice because it will save my position at court. And I think I think a lot of that is evidenced in what happened to her. Um, so, yes, that's why I don't think she's quite as evil <laughs> as everyone says. <laughs> So as you were writing, what types of research did you have to do? Was it a lot of primary, a lot of secondary? Were you traveling to places in England to visit places that these women had been? Or was it more just like computer based because you were probably writing during COVID? Yeah, COVID was, uh, was quite an impact. <laughs> um, yes, I mean, the, the book was delayed by about a year because of COVID, just because, as you say, everything was closed and couldn't get there. So a lot of it was kind of computer-based initially. Um, I, I sort of did do a lot of secondary reading initially, um, just trying to get a grip particularly with Alice because so much contradictory stuff has been written about her. Um, and there's a lot of confusing things that happen close together. So things I was reading, people were putting things in different orders. Um, and so I was just reading everything, trying to figure out what what happened. <laughs> Who is she? Where did she come from? What happened at her trial? What What's going on here? Um, so and, and that was yeah, that was definitely helped by by the lockdown. Um, I was like, well, I can't go look at these documents, so I might as well read every book that I can get online. Um, and for that, I would say as well, you know, there were a lot of really amazing archives, libraries, journals who made a lot of stuff available online during lockdown um, for free for people to look at. And that really did help with research and you know there were a few archives and things that sent me scans of material when I couldn't go and look at it myself which was really useful um but yes there's there's things in the National Archives I'm lucky to live uh, near London so it was easy for me to kind of travel in and look at some materials there and the great huge long wardrobe accounts and sort of sifting through pages to see like one reference to Alice Perez getting a robe and everything which is always really fun um and and yeah just kind of trying to piece 
piece it all together. Um, another thing that's really useful is a lot of the medieval chronicles were translated by Victorian historians uh, when they sort of got really interested in medieval history. Um, and so again, that means because of copyright that they're available online because they're able to be digitized because they're out of copyright now. Um, so again, that's really helpful to kind of access things like that as well. So yeah, it's, it's quite a mix of things and pulling them in. And yeah, it was definitely a very different experience writing it during COVID. Uh, which I would hope not to repeat again. <laughs> but but yeah, no, as I said, it, it is fun and like finding those tiny pieces of information, you know, particularly doing women's history, you know, even with Philippa, like she's a queen and she's still so elusive. Um, and she's still, even in secondary sources, you know, I was buying books as having delivered from Amazon and bookshops, like, okay, I can't go to a library. I'm just going to buy all the books I can find and have it bought to me instead. And I'd buy these huge books on Edward III that are like 400 pages. And I'd flick to the index and look for Philippa and there'd be like three references. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'd be like, they were married for 40 years and you've right. referenced her three times in your 400 page book. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, that was really eye opening as well, actually, to sort of see the gaps that were there, but how much information is actually there once you start digging um, and just that lots of people haven't been using it. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Well, we appreciate you doing all that work to bring these <laughs> stories to light because uh, we've been doing this podcast a long time and I have never heard of either of these women. So, <laughs> but we're so excited for your book. Uh, it released, I believe, on April, April 4th, 4th April right? 4th. Um, so where can people find you? Where can people find your blog and this book? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, as you say, it came out in America just last month, which was great. Um, came out a few months earlier in the UK, which is where I'm based. Um, so that was really exciting. Uh, both lovely covers and it's always fun seeing the differences sort of across the ocean. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, it's available in all sort of big bookshops, um, in lots of local ones as well. You know, it's always good. We always talk about Amazon and stuff, but it's always good to support the little independent bookstores as well. Lots of them order it in. Um, and yeah, I'm sort of, I'm all over the internet. <laughs> uh, so my blog is just history posts. Um, so you can find that online and that's got all of my sort of longer blog posts on there. Um, and I also have a Facebook and Twitter page for the blog as well, uh, where I share daily posts of just like interesting bits and pieces and sort of short, shorter posts. Um, and I also have a Twitter account, uh, Gemma H author for my author persona, where if you're interested in hearing about the research I'm doing for my books or pictures of my cat <laughs> um, they can be found on there as well well thank you so much it's been such a pleasure talking to you and thank you for doing this research and making these two women available to the public oh thank you so much for having me and i'm very excited to try the cocktail yeah. <laughs>